there are so many wonderful things in our world that people just don't have the time or energy to explore. But that doesn't mean that they're not curious. And we, across cultures, have traditions where in childhood, people set aside lots of time for learning. And then in most cultures, as they get near adulthood, they shift away from learning and toward doing. But as I study the human animal and what causes people to thrive, even what makes the very fabric of our brains healthy, new learning is helpful. And I love to learn. You know, I get described as an expert a lot. That always makes me feel a little self-conscious. What I want to share with people is just an enthusiasm for learning all the time, because I have that. So many of us go through life feeling out of touch with ourselves, others, and the world around us. We feel disconnected, overwhelmed, distracted, and uncertain of how to find the clarity, purpose, and direction we so deeply, so authentically desire. The Living Centered Podcast is an invitation to another way of living. Every episode, we sit down with mental health experts, artists, and friends for a practical and honest conversation about how to pursue a more centered life rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting into who we truly are. Hey, I'm Miles Edcox. And I'm Lindsay Nobles. And welcome to another episode of the Living Centered Podcast. Our vision for the Living Centered Podcast is to invite on mental health experts, on-site alums, and other friends who are in pursuit of emotional wellness and living a centered life. And in today's case, our guest is all three. Mike McCarg is known by many as Science Mike. He is an expert in so many areas, but more than that, he's a dear friend, and as he'll share, an alumni of OnSite's Living Centered program. Mike is a public educator who's trusted by millions to use empathy and deep scientific insights to help them navigate some of the most difficult parts of the human experience. Just from that sentence alone, I really can't imagine a better guest uh, for our podcast. Mike is the host of the Cozy Robot Show, formerly uh, Ask Science Mike. He is the best-selling author of Finding God in the Waves and You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. And he works as a science advisor and story consultant for film and television working with clients including Marvel Studios and Pete Holmes. And, you know, Lindsay and I sat down with Mike via Zoom a short time ago, and it was such a remarkable conversation. Mike opened up about his experience over the last year, connecting deeper to his, his, uh, his emotions, addressing past adversity, and showing up more fully human, all while navigating a global pandemic and the launch of his new show. Mike is so incredibly brilliant and simultaneously authentic, genuine, and insightful. I was in awe of his ability to communicate complicated concepts in a practical, applicable, and matter-of-fact manner, and I know you will be too. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear from my good friend, Mike. Well, here we are, my friend, Science Mike, on the Living Center Podcast. Thanks for being here, bud. It is truly an honor. Uh, this has been one that when we started talking about doing a podcast that would be produced out of on-site, that we wanted you here. And so thank you for saying yes and for being a guest and for being a friend of, of what we do. 
there's a lot of directions that uh, I'd love to go with you. Uh, we debated, Lindsay and I did, in a pre-production meeting about, you know, there's if we wanted to make this topic-driven, you know, what in the world would we pick? Because you have a lot of different uh, expertise. But we just thought, let's make this conversational because uh, you do that really well, too. But we'd love to pick your brain a little bit. I think our guests now know that uh, we have some subject matter experts on this show, and we also have just everyday people that are on the emotional health journey. And then uh, every now and then we get both, and that would that would be you. So we'd love to get to know you a little bit, or um, I should say selfishly, I know you. I, always get, I love getting to know you better, but I'd love for our audience uh, to get to know you a little bit more. And then um, we'd like to hear a little bit about your thoughts on emotional health, emotional wellness, mm. emotional intelligence. And you call yourself, you may not know this, at least somebody calls you this, either you wrote your bio or someone else did, a public educator. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's, that is a cool title. That's where you start. And tell me what that is and why it's important to you. People are busy and life is hard. And I start with that assumption. And there are so many wonderful things in our world that people just don't have the time or energy to explore. But that doesn't mean that they're not curious. And we, across cultures, have traditions where in childhood, people set aside lots of time for learning. And then in most cultures, as they get near adulthood, They shift away from learning and toward doing. But as I study the human animal and what causes people to thrive, even what makes the very fabric of our brains healthy, new learning is helpful. And I love to learn. You know, I get described as an expert a lot. That always makes me feel a little self-conscious. Uh, What I want to share with people is just an enthusiasm for learning all the time, because I have that. And so I have some, uh, I have a good baritone voice, and I have (laughs) a lot of experience as a storyteller, and it has led to the place where I kind of get to be publicly curious and save other people's time. So I'll go read 10 or 15 or 30 books and talk to 10 people and then turn that into eight or 12 minutes of content on a podcast or a YouTube show. And then people get to distill all that time I spent into the insight and the learning, but they catch the enthusiasm for curiosity and the excitement for learning. And so, you know, we do have venues in our society for adults to learn. We have, you know, university systems and we have You know, books are widely available, but what we don't have are a lot of people just doing adult-centered learning that is pretty much universally accessible, which is why I put things out for free on the internet, is so that people who are interested in learning can keep learning. And the kind of emphasis of what I talk about in any given season of my life tends to directly follow what I'm learning myself. So I end up exploring a pretty wide range of topics and people who stick with me over time. um, I don't just stick in like one particular place. I learn new things. I get excited and I share that with the people that follow my work. Well said. The enthusiasm is definitely contagious. Uh, (laughs) uh, And I think one of the things I respect and appreciate about the work that you've always put out is that it doesn't feel 
like it's driven by agenda. Mm-hmm. It feels like it's driven by an objective curiosity uh, that can look at the duality of thought, thinking, belief systems. It's open to challenging uh, constructs and uh, things that might get in the way for us being curious. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's serving the greater good. And so mm-hmm. I kind of want to learn how to be a public educator myself. And in some ways, maybe maybe I do a little bit of that with my work at Onsite. But I just was so intrigued. I was like, I don't know what my title is these days, but I kind of want it to be public educator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good fun. And I would definitely say I experience you as a public educator. Um, personally, mm-hmm. I've learned a lot from you in your public work. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, we had the opportunity to talk on a podcast a couple of years back, a podcast that myself and my good friend Ruthie Lindsay uh, do. We came out to your home in Los Angeles and, and talked to you. And at that point, we were talking about trauma therapy. And or that's where the conversation kind of went. We talked about the opportunities in it, the progress of it, um, the limitations and the challenges that you had experienced in it. And uh, mm-hmm. it was just so informative and so raw and real uh, that uh, I still mm-hmm. get great feedback uh, from people that felt permission to speak up about a couple of things that you had the courage to do in that that uh, that conversation. But um, I'm sure a lot's transpired since then. You know, this podcast is called the Living Centered Podcast, which we loosely would just define as living into the truth of who you are and, and who you're becoming. And no perfect way to find that center point or balance, but I really do believe you can achieve um, a life that is really true to you. That's mm. what we try to support people on the journey of doing here uh, through our framework at, at Onsite. As you know, our kind of marquee program is called the Living Centered Program, but mm-hmm. that's really what this podcast and these conversations are about is, is, is one doorway we find some good information and some freedom from limiting beliefs is is through the lens of our emotional intelligence and our emotional health and how we treat ourselves and how self-aware we are and how empathetic we are towards other people and ourselves. And so based on where we were a couple years ago with your knowledge and your personal experience on the therapeutic journey and, and where we are now, kind of catch us up on what's happened, you know, in your life since then. Oh, gosh, so much. Kind of professionally, I made a big transition. I'm the co-founder of, a, of an organization and a, a media property called The Liturgists. And uh, I stepped back from that. And I've kind of gone full time just with my kind of public education work. And then I've been doing a lot of consulting, I guess, or collaborating with people on how to tell consistent, emotionally resonant stories. And I've done that for some pretty well-known companies. I've been a a science advisor for phase four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So that's a pretty well-known storytelling enterprise. I did a lot of trips down to their headquarters in Burbank to talk to their writers and producers and directors about, uh, you know, how different things in that lore work. And then I've kind of I've launched a new program called the Cozy Robot Show, where we're exploring the intersection of critical thinking and mental health, uh, which sounds like a strange combination. But I think in this time when people have so much difficulty telling what is true or accurate in real in life and in media, critical thinking skills can really help us. But I also know 
that critical thinking can be what? It can be cold. It can be emotionally distant. It can be cerebral. So I think to be a healthy and functioning society, alongside critical thinking, we also need to foster really good skills of of empathy, of um, mm. maintaining healthy relationships and establishing boundaries and uh, all these things that we aren't really taught in American society. We aren't taught to think critically or to have good mental health and relational skills. So I've tried to create programming that helps us explore how to balance those things together. And it's been a ton of fun. Personally, probably the biggest thing that happened between our last conversation and now was me going to the Living Center program at OnSite, which has been wildly transformative in my personal mental health. You know, as we kind of talked about on that that podcast, I'd been doing trauma therapy. I'd been dealing with some debilitating panic attacks. I'd been dealing with some very, very difficult periods of depression and suicidality. Suicidality had been something that uh, was a pretty constant part of my life since I was a teenager. It was well-managed. I had good tool sets, but I usually couldn't go, you know, more than a couple weeks without thinking, boy, it'd be nice if I could end my life, Uh, which is a heavy way to relate to yourself. And, you know, I I had an interesting situation where I had a lot of a lot of people in my life. Uh, I'm guessing eight different individuals saying you should mm. go to onsite. And I well, what happens at onsite? And if anybody tries to describe what happens at onsite, it sounds like this really terrible thing you would never want to do. <laughs> uh, you go to a place for a long time and it's very emotionally intense and you don't have your phone and it just seems like whoa. I would never do this. And, but the, some of the people I trust most in the world, uh, my friend Jess Martindale, another friend Steve Fortunato, both mm-hmm. told me, like, you really need to do this. And I told them both no. And then they both talked to Jenny, my wife, uh, about how much this would help me. And she's like, oh, he needs to go. And at that point, it's kind of over. It's <laughs> uh, like I'm the kind of person that I understand that if I keep that relationship going well, my life goes pretty well in response. So I mm-hmm. went to the Living Center program and came completely unglued for a week. I mean, as I was there, I was like, I, th- I'm getting worse. Like this was this was probably not a great idea. And it wasn't until the very end, the last couple of days, I was having a hard time trusting the process while I was there. <laughs> Because it was, it seemed too difficult. Um, and towards the last couple of days, I started to feel. I don't have a better word for it than some degree of healing. I don't have a. It's not the perfect word, but the closest I can get it was a sense, a felt sense of healing. Not that I was healed, but that there was something happening within me, mm. and. Um, I got through some really difficult relational dynamics I was facing in my life. And that voice that told me it'd be better if I wasn't alive, that was always there, got quiet. And I don't want it's not It's not like I haven't experienced a moment of suicidality. It's not like, and he lived happily ever after. No. <laughs> Onsite set me up to continue working on myself. 
and to do hard work, but it gave me the tool set I needed to face some really challenging things in my life and to go in and meaningfully change the way I relate to other people. What do I mean? I mean my wife. I mean my children. I mean my close friends and my business associates. I mean the public through my work. I figured I was a pretty, the deepest cycle of codependency I had was with the people who watch and listen to my work, the people who read my books. I had a, an intense need to manage their feelings for them. And then when mm -hmm. I couldn't make people's lives perfect, then I felt like a failure and I felt like I should die. And I, would, I could never identify those things. And identifying, it seems so, uh, who cares about identifying? At least where I'm at now, what's important to me is the only value in identifying things cognitively is to then relate to them emotionally, change the patterns with which you exist with others and the patterns with which you exist with yourself. And where that's led me is in a global pandemic with probably the greatest set of environmental stressors I or most people alive have ever faced, I've treaded water and made some progress on myself in these difficult times. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm so grateful that I was at your place in January. I, I think there's a good chance I wouldn't have made it through this pandemic period if I hadn't been at onsite wow. in January. Mm. And I'm learning to understand my limitations, that I can't save people, that I can't really save myself, that what I can do is be present with myself and give myself space and give myself grace and stop trying to fix me all the time. I was always treating myself like a project that if I could just perfect I wouldn't have to do any more self-work. And I'm realizing, you know, maybe it's not that I just am going to stop catastrophizing when things are challenging. Maybe for now it's good enough I can go, oh, wow, I'm catastrophizing. And I'm catastrophizing because I have a trauma background and I'm trying to protect myself. And so I can just be aware this is catastrophizing. I can still verbalize all the catastrophizing if I need to. But it lets me hold it more loosely and not be... Um, completely dominated by that experience. So that's a really long answer. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, I think it, a lot has happened since we last spoke. <laughs> Thanks for sharing all that. I know that you had talked to Miles before about doing a lot of trauma therapy. How was the on-site experience different than what you'd experienced before? There's two pieces, I think, that separate it from even, you know, I worked with one of the best trauma therapists in the world. Ron Frederick is a, a widely recognized, incredible trauma therapist. I, would, I wouldn't trade my time with him for anything. But I had to drive across Los Angeles. <laughs> which is in traumatizing traffic, in itself, I imagine. <laughs> which is traumatized. Literally, I got so upset. Once on his way to the office, I got out of the car, abandoned my car in the roadway. I mean, it was it, what I'm trying to deal with. One of the reasons I'm going to trauma therapy is I'm having panic attacks in traffic and I have to drive an hour in LA traffic to get to trauma therapy. So I get to trauma therapy and I'm a mess. We have to spend some time getting me de-escalated, some time getting me into the therapeutic zone, and then some time putting me back together. So there were weeks where we could do 
what, eight or 12 minutes of real work. Mm. When I'm at on-site, I don't have to get put back together so I can drive across town. We can spend time in the space doing the work. And it's exhausting. It is absolutely hard work. But there's more time and and I you know, I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have believed this before I had the experience. The group thing really matters. I would have thought like, oh, a group thing, this is just a slow, inefficient way to do therapy. But when I think about it, uh, you know, kind of from an evolutionary biological perspective, we're social mammals, of course. Doing hard emotional work in a social setting accelerates that work, right? Because we end up receiving extra social validation signals than even the best therapist in the world can give us. Uh, you know, my therapist's name was Courtney, Courtney Leak, and she was incredible. She's the best. She's so great. But part of what she did was be a therapist, and part of what she did was cultivate a supportive social system in the room that everyone participated in. She trained us how to support each other. And the fact that we didn't, we weren't stuck in an hour and then having to go back to our normal lives. And we had that social support with perfectly people you don't know. People have no expectation of you. People you're not worried about what they think about you. You can set all that stuff aside. And those two things together were such a force multiplier for the work, I felt like I made more progress in, was it six days? I can't remember how long Living Centered is. It's, it's about a week. Yeah. I felt like I made more progress in that time than I'd made in like the prior two or three years of mm -hmm. weekly therapy. But it was transformative. And there was the, there's the post-experience support where OnSite kind of provides you with these ongoing tool sets and these, these reminders. And you, you know, most of the people who end up in a, in a small group together, they stay in contact. And so it's nice kind of having those people to, to go back with. I, there's people I met at Onsite who have become some of my closest and dearest friends. And it's very easy to us to go back to that mindset of where you were when you're sitting on a pillow in a cabin, when you're having a conversation with someone else who's been there. And it helps you stay more open to your feelings and more ready to share difficult things with another person. And that person, because mm -hmm. they were at onsite, knows how to respond to you with the validation you need after sharing a really difficult mm -hmm. and challenging thought or feeling. So, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> I had six amazing weeks of community college. So I'm the farthest thing in the world from a mental health expert, but from my kind of homebrew education knowledge, <laughs> the duration of the experience and the social validation are what makes it so uniquely powerful. Gosh, so well said. There's um, so much I can relate to in <clears throat> your journey from uh, where you explained you were a couple years ago to where you are now. And then you did a, a little backdraft into the narrative of January until now and talked about the environmental stressors and just, gosh, there, there was a lot in there, but I really liked uh, watching the way you navigated talking to yourself and then telling us the story. It, really, you were doing parts work in that you said there was, hmm. you didn't use this language, but there was a part of me that was catastrophizing. I can acknowledge mm -hmm. that, yep, that part of me, uh, has a seat at the table. It's doing what it's doing based on this historic imprint. And then there's another part of me that can notice mm -hmm. that. 
and can separate myself from it. And there's more to me. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about doing this work and pursuing mm-hmm. living somewhat into our center or our truth, reconciling our pain and our past, which I've on the journey of doing that as well. I do that professionally, but I'm very invested in doing that personally. Certainly didn't get into my profession by accident. Right. And it is the, it's almost like an identity integration to where when mm-hmm. you first start getting curious and interested about mental health, or a lot of times you go through the door of what's wrong with me? Uh, what, ha- what, what is going on in my system, my body, my mind that just doesn't feel congruent or right? And many times we need to protect and hide that until we uh, can raise our shame ceiling and get permission to talk about it. But and, and then you get a little bit of information and then I, I did anyway, and I see this a lot, particularly when I used to work in the crisis space. I used to do crisis interventions, and then I ran a traditional rehabilitation center uh, prior to my time at Onsite that treated people in late-stage addiction and eating disorders and different um, things. And people would come into that having done a lot of therapy, and they were so identified with their disorder or their disease mm-hmm. that they had no idea who they were beyond it. And one of my favorite things to do when they came there and listed off all the pathology that had been handed to them, which is important, I know it's got its place, is to say, and who are you? Who are you Mm. beyond what you've been through and beyond these new labels that have served you? And when people stop to recognize they are more than what happened to them, Mm. they are more than what's happening to them currently then there is this integration of identity to realize we are complex human beings. There are multiple parts of self moving at all times. And the more we can look at ourselves through the lens of empathy and grace, take one step back and kind of always be able to reset our reality, then we can recalibrate and reconnect to the truth of who we are. And I just wanted to affirm and acknowledge that I thought Mm -hmm. I was watching you do that in real time as you were telling your story. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a beautiful mirror for all of us right now. Mm. Um, so two, two things. I, I know I said a lot there. I was really meant to just affirm your process, but I was just curious about my own as well. But I'm curious from, from your lens, what's happening in our brain when we might be doing that, when we have a, a, a felt sense of self-awareness and can separate back and evaluate certain parts of self in real time. And as you mm-hmm. said, make a little progress on us in the midst of significant environmental stressors. What's, what's happening mm-hmm. in our mind and our brain when we're doing that? And then I'm keenly interested in how you talked about the importance of social animals, which we all are, being in a psychologically safe container to be able to do deep work together. And then you mm-hmm. said, Courtney kind of trained us on how to support each other. And I thought, mm-hmm. man, how could we then train, and that's probably part of the mission that you and I both live in, others on how we all support each other better? Mm. Mm. Did, you get, did you get the part one and two of those questions? I got part one and part two, and they are exceptionally <laughs> okay. well-composed questions. In the brain piece, what's happening when we are able to take a look back at ourselves? There's a wonderful but dated understanding of our brains called the triune brain model, which basically subdivides a human brain into three layers. 
called the neocortex, the limbic system, and the brainstem, or uh, also sometimes called the neomammalian and paleomammalian and reptile brains. Uh, blah. No one can remember that. So I call them the person, the puppy, and the crocodile. <laughs> the crocodile is that deepest part of your brain. It is your survival brain. It regulates your aggressive responses, your uh, bodily systems, your respiration. And notably, the crocodile has the closest proximity to your spinal column and the rest of your body. It gets first and last say about how the brain will interact with the body. And then right on top of that, kind of wrapped around it, is the puppy. That's our emotional and social brain. It wants to be liked. It wants to be loved. It wants touch. It wants sensual experiences. It, uh, the crocodile is happy to just get nutrition, but the puppy would like some flavor along with it, right? So this is where we get more into the mammalian brain structures. And then wrapped around that, uh, about as thick as a dinner napkin and about the same size, if you stretch it out, would be our neocortex. This is the most structurally complex neuronal arrangement in our brains. This is where our executive function lives, where language and philosophy and music and advanced visual processing and advanced tactile processing, the things that are the most uniquely human features of the human brain are in the neocortex, which I call the person. And if we think about kind of a an everyday moment that might happen. And I'll imagine that you're in a grocery store right in the middle of this pandemic and everyone's wearing their masks and they're standing six feet apart and doing everything right. And I want you to imagine, I'm sure this has never happened anywhere, that someone cuts in line. Uh, and they're wearing a, you know, an American flag uh, tank top and they've got a, a little basket with you know a 24 pack of Coors and a Maxim magazine. That's all that's in there. And everybody else is trying to do the right thing. This person cuts in line in front of everyone and tries to go straight to the checkout counter, violating every social norm we know of. In that moment, we see the person, the puppy, and the crocodile go into action. The crocodile's the fastest. So the crocodile goes, whoa, territorial intrusion. Let's get them, right? And then the puppy is just almost as fast as the crocodile and pops in and goes, but wait, what if they're a friend? And so the puppy wants to wait on this aggression <laughs> signal to see if we know the person or not, which the puppy can actually figure out really quickly. And if it turns out that's not a friend, then the puppy bears his teeth and says, you're right, crocodile, let's get them. Meanwhile, from their lofty post in the top of the skull, the person brain is reading a newspaper and looks down and goes, whoa, something's happening in the brain-body system. I guess I should pay attention to this instead of whatever I was thinking about. And they realize, oh, wow, my fight-or-flight system is activated. I'm about to punch another human person, but that could affect my reputation, and there's laws, and there's all these things I know about that the puppy and the crocodile don't. And so the person brain goes, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We can't hit them. But by now, there's like this energy in the brain-body system where the puppy and the crocodile have to do something. By now, our face is hot. Our hands are cold. There's a burning in our belly. This emotional energy has to go somewhere. And so the person goes, I know exactly what we'll do. You two hold on and says out loud, well, I guess some people just don't know the rules. And we say a passive-aggressive comment. And the puppy and the crocodile high-five, and the person <laughs> goes back to daydreaming, right? These three layers of the brain do what they do every moment of our lives. Mm. When we talk about trauma, 
We are talking about experiences that have been encoded where? The puppy and the crocodile. Why? Trauma predates cognition. If you mm. can imagine a fish swimming in the sea and there's a shadow that passes overhead and suddenly a blinding pain as something big and toothy bites into this fish, it struggles and survives and swims away, but it bleeds and it almost dies. That's trauma and trauma exists to keep us alive. Why? Because the next time that fish is swimming through the water, weeks later, now healed, and a shadow passes over in the water, that fish is going to swim as fast as it can. Whether that shadow is a big fish or a wave doesn't matter. What matters is the fish stays alive. And when we understand trauma from a neuroanatomical perspective, we understand trauma gets encoded into the brainstem and the limbic system primarily. Well, our ability to observe to analyze and to plan lives out in the person brain, in the neocortex. So the discipline we build as trauma survivors is being able to train our person to look at non-judgmentally what the puppy and the crocodile are doing in response to trauma. So hmm. I have incredible life trauma. <laughs> I, it's not even worth listing out. It would take the whole podcast. I've had so many hard things in my life. And so one of the ways I've survived is when things go less than perfect, I imagine the worst possible thing. And I don't only imagine it, I assume that's what's going to happen. It's called catastrophizing. Why is that a survival strategy? Because when something less than the worst possible thing happens, I'm pleasantly surprised. But the act of catastrophizing puts us into really difficult places in our brain-body systems. We release lots of stress hormones. We, uh, we can have a fight-or-flight response to no actual stimulus in our environment, to something we're imagining. So that can actually deepen the trauma response in our nervous system. And that can interfere with our daily living. So one approach is to say, well, I've got to get rid of that catastrophizing. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> Your brain equates catastrophizing with survival. So maybe a middle road, and the one that I'm on right now, is to just let the person step back and go, look at that. The trauma brain is awake, and it's trying to protect me. So I can either waste my willpower, which, by the way, let's talk about it this way. The trauma brain is about the size of a pear, and the willpower brain is about the size of a quarter. Who do you think is going to win tug of war? The pear, right? Mm. So instead of wrestling with the trauma brain, we give it space, and we acknowledge that it's there. And the big thing I've learned in my life is to actually cultivate a sense of gratitude to the trauma response. Why? Because when I say thank you, and I mean it, Thank you, Trauma Brain, for trying to protect me. Gratitude is a powerful feeling neurologically. It changes our neurochemistry and eventually our physiological response. We have a, mm -hmm. several nervous systems. Um, another way of thinking about it, the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic and the mm -hmm. polyvagal nervous systems. Mm -hmm. When we cultivate gratitude, we encourage our polyvagal nervous system to encourage our parasympathetic sympathetic balance to move towards calm and away from activation or arousal. 
So cultivating gratitude through awareness in response to catastrophizing doesn't stop the catastrophizing, mm -hmm. but it does stop the stress hormones and the cycle of negative thinking. And I don't want to, when I say stop, I don't want to set expectations in an unrealistic place. I'm not saying the first time you try to be grateful, you'll stop catastrophizing. I'm saying you can build a skill over time that helps you manage the life impact of the trauma response. That's the neuroanatomy of what's happening in part therapy. The second thing, why does social support matter so much? Humans are arguably the most social mammal on this planet. Now, you know, you social insects are probably more social than we are, but they have a fundamentally different socialization system. So when you talk about mammals, elephants, dolphins, chimpanzees, the various canines that are social, none of them form societies as large as we do. In fact, if you take away language and culture and all this stuff we use to build really huge societies, non-language speaking humans can still form a culture of about 150 people, which is about three times the size of a chimp society. It's really impressive. The reason we do this is we're actually really inefficient survival animals for our size. Most animals the size of a human can absolutely destroy a human in physical combat and in acquiring food and shelter and other resources. We survive by cooperating. Our brains know this. Our brains equate social isolation with death, and rightly so, before cities a lonely human was a dead human. So our brains constantly scan other people's bodies to see what? What do these people think about me? And this is below our conscious awareness. Now, we might have a conscious estimation of our reputation and other people's emotions, but that system's relatively slow. Our polyvagal nervous system, that's the nervous system that involves uh, primarily the nerves that go into our guts, and our, uh, our heart and lung system, it's a very fast nervous system. It works directly with the crocodile. Our polyvagal system can interpret the emotional timbre of speech more rapidly than our brains can understand language. So someone speaking in a tone can change your respiration rate before you understand what they said. And our visual systems, likewise, are wired not only into our visual cortex, which is big and advanced and slow, but also into the polyvagal system. So when our eyes look at something called micro-expressions, the facial expressions people make for fractions of a second, our deepest part of our brain-body system are assessing where we fit socially with others. And so if you're expressing a feeling good or bad in your own estimation, and someone else makes just a little bit of a wincing face, really, really fast, faster probably than your conscious mind can be aware of, your brain-body system starts to regulate itself to avoid that expression on another person's face to keep you popular. Why? Because popularity equals survival. In our daily lives, the reason it's so hard to be emotionally present is people haven't been trained about a full texture of emotional experiences. And so they make micro expressions that make us feel judged or vulnerable for sharing. And if they go beyond that, sometimes a lot of our family systems are outright cruel in response to sincere emotional expression. Mm. And so when you go into a space like on-site where everyone's on equal footing and a trained specialist 
cultivates a set of patterns and behaviors that cultivates an inner posture that then manifests in an absence of these judging micro-expressions, the effect on participants is radical because they receive a degree of social validation they've probably never experienced at the same time they do something they've never done in their lives, which is be really honest about what I'm feeling in this moment, especially feelings that uh, we've been socialized that uh, communicate some form of weakness, feelings like fear or sadness. And the effect of that on a social mammal's brain, especially a human brain, really can't be overstated. It's why Hmm. six days at onsite was kind of equal in life impact to years of working with some of the best therapists in the world in my life. We are intrinsically social mammals, and this kind of intensive group therapy is an intrinsically social process, which is an ideal pairing. Wow. I'm curious the role that you think that technology and social media plays in this deterioration of our lack of understanding around psychological safety. So I feel like in my own experience, that's one of the things that's made it sort of harder because we get so many likes and affirmations sort of publicly, perhaps on social media, but then it's not real. So have you seen that be sort of a deterioration or confusing for people? Social media is so complex. It's so complex because it's really good in many ways. There's a lot of disabled people who are able to socialize more fully than they've ever been able to socialize because of digital social opportunities. There's a lot of organizing work that happens among marginalized communities that it's been a real equalizer in public impact. There's groups that haven't had a voice in our culture globally and in the United States that now have a voice, and that's good. So I don't want to just come say social media is bad. And most human communication is nonverbal. The the majority of our communication is nonverbal. What do I mean? Mm -hmm. The tone of our voice, the modulation, the micro expressions on our face, our body posture, our rate of respiration, our perspiration, all these things communicate more than the words we're saying. And what all the social platforms share in common is a reduction of the human experience to language and only language. Now, there's some exceptions. You might be able to go live on Instagram, and then people get to see if, you know, I'm an Instagram person, so they get to see my face, but I don't get to see their faces in response. And that is fundamentally and inherently and irreversibly dehumanizing. Our logical cognitive brains are just sharper. They're quick in a lot of ways. And when we can't see the impact of our words on other people, we can be cruel and cutting in a way that we just only someone who's like sociopathic could be in person. Yeah. And we're not aware of this. Now we see other people doing it. This is a real challenge with the human brain. It's very easy for us to recognize behaviors in other people and very difficult to recognize them in ourselves. So we might go online and say, look how mean everyone else is on social media. Good thing I'm not like that. And I've been trying to set some real firm boundaries with myself around social media uh, for that reason and what uh, proportion of my interactions with people can be digital versus something that is uh, I'd call thicker. There's a thinness to digital communication. 
Um, you know, a lot of people are surprised. Like I really don't text like mm -hmm. at all, like really at all. If you want to communicate with me, call me on the phone. I actually pick up the phone when it rings because that the difference between tweeting and texting and talking neurologically is profound. You don't have the same kind of conflict situations. I, in this age of uh, pandemicking, I'm the first person who will get on a video call with somebody. I prefer to add more context to our communication. I email and text and tweet as little as possible interpersonally and move towards thicker forms of communication as much as I can because it's more easy to be human in those situations. Mm -hmm. So well said. Hi, friends. My name is Mackenzie, and I'm a part of the Living Centered podcast team. We are so excited to be launching today. We hope this podcast will equip and encourage you on your emotional health journey. In case you're new, Living Centered is something we say a lot around here. It's a central theme to everything we do. For us, living a centered life means you're on a journey of rediscovering reclaiming, and rooting into who you truly are. We believe that establishing certain habits and rhythms can keep us centered even when our circumstances are anything but. That's why we created a course to help you establish those rhythms and jumpstart your emotional wellness. To celebrate the launch of this podcast, we're giving you 50% off our best-selling digital course, 30 Days of Living Centered. You heard that right, 50%. That's the biggest discount we've ever given. So head on over to onsiteworkshops.com slash 30 days and use the code podcast at the checkout. Now back to the show. It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts around hope for the individual and then hope for the collective. Mm. I believe we're in a season of significant uh, fragmentation, disconnection, and, you know, this conversation will be coming out sometime on the back end or in the middle of the global uh, health crisis that we find ourselves in mm -hmm. with this pandemic and all that has followed the economic crisis and the political stress and uh, social unrest and uh, on mm -hmm. and on and on. So here we are as the collective uh, in the midst of all this. And we weren't exactly in a mental health utopia pre all this. But I think we find ourselves right now all asking big questions. I ask myself these questions daily because it's hard to pull off what we're trying to pull off in a season like this. And I only see a mountain of need coming. Mm. And I have both excitement about supporting that need because I know the value of the work that I get to represent, but I also mm. feel overwhelmed mm. that I don't think we're set up as a public health to, to meet it uh, or to, you know, the problem is outpacing the solution right now. So I think professionally, I've been, I found myself dancing somewhere between optimism and uh, just feeling a little hopeless at times. Like, what are we going to do, you know, with all that is and all that's coming? And so I guess I'm asking this both as a human, like, you know, um, I know uh, hope would be helpful for me right now, but also as a collective, I, and I've said, I've said all the right things through this. I've been interviewed, you know, quite a few times and said, hey, you know what? I've been front row seat to so many people going through their own version of 2020. And mm -hmm. I've seen what can happen and 
turning these obstacles into opportunities. But even when I've said it, sometimes I've just questioned, do I really believe what I'm saying right now? So it's just being raw and real around that. But your, your thoughts on that, just uh, what do you see as the challenges and the hope for the individual and for the collective? I mean, the challenges you've just laid out so well. We have a very individualistic culture that is leading to a lot of individual and collective suffering. We don't make deep investments in care for ourselves and for other people. We make deep investments in economic productivity. So that means we have incredible infrastructure to generate and move money. <laughs> and the infrastructure required to keep enough people alive to move money. Right? So if you look at our healthcare system in the United States at least, it is very well suited to emergency care to get people back to work, to, to, to output. I'm not making a moral judgment there. Uh, the way I kind of view the world is like there's just actions and then consequences. And there's almost anything you can do is going to have pros and cons associated with it, right? Like if I were to you know grab a, a lighter and burn my house down right now, there would be consequences, and most of them would be negative. There I could probably identify some pros, though, to what would happen if I intentionally burned my house down, right? So I just want to be really clear. If some people hear me talking, don't think too deeply into the framing. I'm assessing what I see, and that is we are a very capital-focused culture. And that capital focus comes at the expense of our physical and mental health. Hmm. We are by the data a very physically and mentally unhealthy culture, even by historical standards. That's really discouraging. I've become a student of history, and I never liked history growing up. I was like, we should be looking forward and not back. But as I've studied more about history with my existing fascination of primatology, you know, humans are primates. That's, that's our closest neighbors, our, our, our apes, chimpanzees and gorillas, those kinds of animals. You know, chimpanzees and apes and bonobos are some of the most change-resistant animals on the planet. They hate new things. But if you look at it, most life is deeply change-resistant. Why? If we look at the goal life has had since life appeared on this planet, regardless of whatever views you may have about how that happened, what all life shares in common is an incredible drive to survive. And so by, our, by the estimation of the systems that make life happen, nervous systems and respiratory systems and metabolic processes, anything that doesn't kill you is successful. And so that means things that make us really miserable, well, they haven't killed us. So it's not time to abandon ship until we think we might actually die. So when you look at societies of animals, including humans, we don't make changes until it looks like we might die. And when you take that knowledge of primatology and evolutionary biology and then look at human history, the most wonderful, verdant periods in human societies always follow calamity. Because it takes calamity mm. to convince our nervous systems that the risk of change might be worthwhile. The greatest economic expansion in global history came after the largest global conflict. Mm. And so when we look at the mental health crisis we are in right now, that has been deeply exacerbated by a global pandemic, 
I do have hope. And what's my hope? That it's getting so bad that our nervous systems individually and collectively might go, you know what? Something else might be a better idea. Wow. Like it might be, even if we want to remain a capital-focused society, we can't produce a lot of capital if people are so depressed they can't work mm. and so depressed that they end their lives by suicide. That actually has a capital impact. So what if like a smarter investment is a robust public investment in our collective mental health and mental health resources, right? In the same way, mm. I haven't heard anybody of any political ideology right now complain that the government spent a lot of money on vaccines for coronavirus. Everybody seems to think that was a great idea <laughs> because we can't function as a society unless we get the virus under the control. And what I'm saying is what if there's a lot of investments we could make that would make our lives better and actually make our economies more productive. Like this is not some kind of American left-right divide nonsense. I'm saying by everybody's stated values, more robust. We need a lot more miles in the world. Mm. We need a lot more people with the expertise and temperament and time to mm. spend guiding people through mental health journeys. And the only way we're going to get there is to make the choice to invest in it. And I think when I hear, you know, one thing that's very strange to me, I'm 42 years old. The average age of someone who listens to me is 22 years old. There's a big gap between me and my audience. And when I listen, my audience is mostly millennials and Gen Z. And when I hear the ways they talk about priorities as a society, it's very different than what my peers and my elders talk about. And that does not fill me with grief. That fills me with hope and with excitement because I think they might be learning what we did well and we've made enough things bad that they, their nervous systems go, you know what? It's worth the risk to try something new. Woo. So good. I love that because, I mean, the mental health and what's happening in the world, there is a battle against it, but we don't necessarily name it or fight it like it's one. And so it's like, what would it look like if we mm -hmm. put resources behind preemptively investing in making people healthier? So I love equating it to a vaccine. America has such capacity to collectively organize what it wants to. It really does. But America waits until the last minute. And so I think we're getting toward the last minute, and I think, I think that could be good. There is a lot of metaphoric power right now, of course, in the all things pandemic, which we're living in the middle of. But you know, I've, I've often looked at uh, specific uh, and relevant and timely mental health interventions as their own version of a vaccine mm -hmm. for people's soul and their minds and their hearts. And um, although I appreciate your thoughtfulness and confidence in referencing me and in, in, in my contribution and then also in inviting the idea that we need more people. I agree. There needs, you know, I hope more people take interest and passion in the human service space and supporting people, uh, particularly through mental health channels. But I also think we as a culture and a community can back our way into creating psychological safety in our mm -hmm. boardrooms 
and in our living rooms and in our education systems and in our political systems. I really believe that when we become informed, trauma-informed, for example, and we have a deeper understanding about the people in front of us, it's impossible not to have a deeper understanding about ourselves at some point in that process. In other words, when we value human school as much as we do, mm-hmm. all the other educational information that we download into our systems, then we then begin to treat ourselves more humane and the people around us more humanely. And I think that's where things begin to change. I think it's our number one opportunity for prevention is when we take some of the information that is born out of psychology that I will self-admittedly say we've done a poor job at using this information, Mm. Um, Mm. not across the board, because in many ways it saved a tremendous amount of lives and it does a lot of good every day. So I value my colleagues. But I think collectively we've let other industries use our information in impacting and affecting human behavior more than we have, i.e. advertising. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not always not always for good. But mm-hmm. I think if we can start thinking about here's the gold mine of information that we sit on. Here's the implications it has for the world right now. Here's what we know about human beings. And then how do we mobilize it and go towards culture instead of waiting cold culture to need us. That's my hope for Mm -hmm. uh, the world is that we are more emotionally intelligent, more self-aware, more empathetic, more trauma-informed. And that is happening in education, politics, and faith, and business. Mm -hmm. And then the world starts to see a paradigm shift. Mm. May it be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time today. I learned a ton and I love the way that you have sort of harnessed curiosity, not just about the world and the way things come together, but really applied it back at yourself and gotten curious about the things that you do and why you do them. And I think I learned so much about myself listening to you process. And so I'm just grateful for you sharing. Just to wrap up, what is one practical thing that you do every day just to center yourself? You a meditation guy? I am. I guess this would be a meditation. I, I've meditated so much that the the line between meditating and non-meditating has gotten pretty fuzzy. So I don't. <laughs> we can call this a meditation or not. I'll tell you how my, the language I use. I take a daily trip to my feelings chair, and you know our our brains are highly spatially oriented. So the more that we devote spaces to tasks, the faster our brains context switch into those tasks. And so I have a chair that's only job is to be my feelings chair. And when I go to the feelings chair, I have a seat and I get comfortable. And then I just kind of check my body. And I see what's going on. I usually start in my belly because my belly is a real easy place to find something. And I'll see, what do I feel there? Is it hot? Is it cold? Is it burning? Is it butterflies? What is it? What is the, what is the physical sensation in my belly? Then I might move up to my sternum and my chest. Is that tight? Is it hot? Is it, what is it? I'll just Cert, I don't name it. I don't label it. I just pay attention to it. Spread that out to my torso, check in with my shoulders and my neck and my back and my scalp, finally my cheeks, and then last of all, my eyes. And as I follow this road of sensation throughout my body, physical sensations, I've learned that those sensations have to do with feelings. And because I'm a trauma survivor and a 
a white American, I can often have a pretty compartmentalized relationship with my feelings. And my feelings chair is an opportunity and an invitation to myself to kick down those compartmental walls and simply feel. And so as I kind of start to feel something, I'll kind of say, okay, who is this? Who is this? And a lot of times if I'm feeling anxiety or shame, I go, oh, those are, those are mask feelings. Those aren't real feelings. So I'll say, who's behind there? It's okay. Come on out. This is a safe place. And then I'll get a feeling. And often that feeling will be really strong. You know, in this pandemic, I feel a lot of anger in my feelings chair at the kind of collective irresponsibility we've engaged in. Sometimes it's grief or sadness or fear. And I'll simply let myself feel that feeling for as long as feels appropriate. I won't muzzle it. I won't suppress it. If I need to ugly cry, I ugly cry. If I need to hit my hands together, I hit my whatever it takes to express that feeling all the way. Because on the other side, I've learned through experience of the intensity of a feeling is clarity. Mm. Instead of pressing my feelings down, I'm learning to let them out. Mm. Why? Because they are things that teach me something. All my feelings have jobs. Anger tells me that something in my environment is a threat in some way, that some boundary might be being pushed that doesn't need to be. Fear will tell me that something is overwhelming and makes parts of my body think we might not survive. Sadness is my body's way of telling me that there's something not right, but it's not an immediate threat to my survival, but it does need attention. Happiness is my body's way of saying, that was good. Try that again. Surprise is my body's way of saying, oh my gosh, something happening so quickly, I don't even know which feeling to give you. Stay tuned. This is breaking news. Uh, sexual arousal is a feeling my body gives me when it says we should make new people, or this is a time where <laughs> physical connection to another person might help regulate your nervous system. All these jobs have a specific feeling associated with them. And so when I let the feeling happen, I get the information the feeling was trying to tell me. I might figure out, why am I afraid? Oh, I am afraid that people aren't going to like me if I do my show tonight because I might fail. Okay, thank you, body, for telling me that and creating that space every day, at least once a day, often multiple times a day, helps me stay centered and connected to my emotional processes despite the extrinsic and intrinsic pressures to compartmentalize. So I think that's probably probably my most enduring daily practice and has been for quite some time. Maybe it's a meditation. I don't know. Sounds like a meditation to me. Yeah, good stuff. Thank you, my friend, for giving us some of your time. I just think you're so timeless but timely mm. right now. Uh, and the education that you are generously giving to the public is so needed. And uh, we appreciate you spending a little time with it here. You've got some amazing things in your resource closet that we'll certainly highlight and let our guests know about, you know, from your first book, God in the Waves, to the to the last one, um, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass, and then the Cozy Robot Show, which is uh, rising in popularity as we speak. It's an amazing show. So check that out. And we'll list all that stuff for you guys to find more about our friend Mike and we just value we appreciate you and thanks for giving us some time today thanks so much Fred. thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories 
Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.